This is the Alpha Human Podcast, and I am your host, Lawrence Rosenberg. Our guests today are ex-DEA special agents, Stephen Murphy and Javier Pena, who targeted the world's first narco-terrorist, Pablo Escobar, and the Medellin cartel. Living and working alongside their Colombian National Police counterparts in Medellin, Colombia, as well as with elite U.S. military units, their efforts resulted in the dismantling of the largest and most violent international drug trafficking organization of its time. Stephen Javier's pursuit of Pablo Escobar was portrayed in the hit Netflix series Narcos, the first three seasons of which feature Steve and Javier and their activities in Colombia to bring the cartels to justice. Steve and Javier have appeared in numerous documentaries and are the authors of the book Manhunters, How We Took Down Pablo Escobar. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lawrence. You gave me goosebumps there with that introduction. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best introduction we've ever had. Thank you. <laughs> it's fantastic. I, I got to tell you guys, I'm inspired uh, by what the both of you uh, accomplished. Uh, it's, it truly is momentous. I mean, I, 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 I've seen Narcos. I've seen all the seasons. Uh, the first three with, uh, with you guys are, are just mind-blowing in many ways. I, you know, it was a long time ago, and there's a lot of people currently, younger generation, who just aren't aware of what was going on in the 80s and the 90s with, uh, with the rise of cocaine in the cartels and Pablo Escobar. So it is really a powerful tale, uh, a true story. And uh, I read your book, Manhunters, and it resonates uh, it resonates on a very deep human level. It's not some um, documentary style book uh, that simply kind of uh, uh, narrates a tale. It goes, it goes into your characters, your feelings, what you experienced fighting this war, and why it was so personal to the both of you. Uh, so it's, it's powerful stuff. And um, I got to say, you know, although you guys... Uh, Steve, Javier, although you were tip of the spear in the biggest manhunt in history uh, and also on the front lines in the war against the cartels and the flood of cocaine that consumed the United States in the, uh, in the 80s and the 90s, you both started uh, with very humble beginnings in your early days in law enforcement. So I, that's where I'd kind of like to start. And uh, Steve, we'll, we'll kick it off with you. Um, what led uh, you into law enforcement and, uh, and eventually the DEA in particular? Well, um, Lawrence, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I mentioned this in the book, it's not something I'm proud of, but it's, it's a true story. Uh, when I was a young boy living in Middle Tennessee, south of Nashville, uh, summertime, my buddies and I, we, you know, we'd camp out in the summertime in the backyard in our sleeping bags. And of course, when our parents went to bed, we we weren't, uh, we weren't real hellions, but, uh, you know, we'd get on our bikes, we'd ride around neighborhoods and, and things like that. And so, uh, this particular time we, there was a little all night laundromat in our neighborhood and we lived out in the country and, and, uh, we wanted to get sodas and some peanut butter crackers and nobody had any money. 
So we decided we'd go into one of the buddy's houses, you know, break into his house because it was locked up. Well, um, that's the night we learned that cr being criminals was not in our future <laughs> mm. because the cops showed up and these, these two police officers came over and they shined that spotlight on us. And, and, you know, I mean, we just froze, we were petrified and, and they came over and, and talked to us for a while. And I mean, I think we might've been 10 or 11 years old. And they said, listen, boys, this is what we're going to do. We can take you to jail for the rest of your lives, or we can take you home to your parents. And every one of us looked at each other and said, take us to jail. Because <laughs> we knew what would happen when we got home. And, and of course, the two police officers, they laughed and they got a kick out of that. And they took us all home to our parents and, and what we thought would happen, happened. Mm. Uh, so we never did that again. But the point of that story is, they, I guess they left an impression. I didn't realize it at the time, but they really left an impression on me to where that's Ever since I was a little kid, I've never wanted to do anything other than be a police officer. And I'm looking at it from, and you know, people think this is cliche and naive when you say things like this, but most police officers want to do that job because they want to help people. And that's the truth. Hmm. So, um, you know, I, I, uh, I started out in college at West Virginia University when I was 17 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, after the first semester, my dad said, enough of that. I don't pay for academic probation. You're coming home. <laughs> and so I did. And, and I started at Bluefield State College. And that's in southern West Virginia. And um, it just so happened they had just implemented their criminal justice program. Now, my dad is a retired minister and him and my uncle owned a flooring store, a carpet business. I was the only son in both families. And it was always expected for me to take over the family business. I hated it. I started working there at 14 years old. I hated it. It's manual labor. It's, you know, it's, it's more than I wanted to get involved with. And I just mm. want to be a cop. So I'll be nice to my parents. I enrolled in the criminal justice program. And then that summer of 1975, uh, I was the first college student to uh, partake of the internship program with the criminal justice system. Uh, there at the college, I spent five weeks with the sheriff's office, five weeks with the city police. Um, when, when the fall semester of college started back, they offered the civil service exam. Of course, one of the criminal justice professors came and encouraged everybody to take the test. And I did. And, uh, and I don't know how this happened, but I scored the highest of anybody on the test. That shows you how simple the test was, right? <laughs> and uh, in November, well, the city offered me a job. And so I turned 19 years old in October of 75. And in November, one month later, I started as a police officer in Bluefield, West Virginia. Mm. Now, at that time, they provided your, your weapon, your, your uniforms and things like that, but you had to provide your own weapon and your own leather gear, your, your gun belt and all that stuff. Interesting. I wasn't old, I wasn't old enough to buy a gun at 19 years old. So my, one of the police officers bought my gun. My dad bought my ammo for me. And, and lo and behold, I was a, a police officer carrying a loaded weapon. I could arrest you, but I couldn't buy the stupid thing, you know? So it's it just kind of ironic how that all came about. Hmm. But then um, spent six years as a city police officer there, a uniform officer, loved every minute of it. Um, can't imagine being a uniform police officer today, to be quite honest with you, mm -hmm. but, um, went through divorce and times were tough financially and, and the railroad police, um, the a captain that I knew there that I'd gone to college with was hiring in Norfolk, Virginia, and, and he hired me. So I took that job because it doubled my salary. Right. Uh, be quite honest with you. Uh, didn't really like being a railroad policeman. I'm not taking anything away from those guys. They, they do a phenomenal job. You invest all crimes against the railroad except for capital crimes. So, you know, you're still involved in police work. But as a city cop, I had done this one deal where my partner and I, not really not a partner, he's my friend. He was a police officer also. 
a buddy of ours ran a gas station. He said, hey, there's this 17-year-old kid running around selling pound quantities of, of marijuana. We said, well, call him. You know, invite him on down here. So we hid in the back room. Sure enough, the kid shows up with a pound of weed. Um, it wasn't like you see on TV where we jumped out and slammed him to the ground and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. We just stepped out and showed him our badge and said, how you doing? What do you got there? So we took the bag. We tested it, tested positive. We took him to the police station, called his dad. So, you know, because he's a juvenile. His dad comes up and you could tell right off the bat, his dad was going to do to him what my dad did to me when the cops brought me home. Yep. So we, we cut the kid a break, let him go. Um, sure enough, you know, his dad tuned him up, never had another problem out of that young man again. But it's, it's kind of ironic because just a couple months ago on one of our social media sites, uh, we get a lot of messages and, and quite honestly, we don't check them that often because we're a little <laughs> bit busy, but uh, it was the kid, it was the guy. And he was telling people that, you know, Hey, the, I told you guys that, you know, one of the DEA narcos guys from the, from the narco series, Netflix is the guy that locked me up when I was 17 years old. So I emailed him back and, and we've actually kind of become friends now. And he was thanking me for cutting him a break, you know, for making a stupid decision a long time ago. Well, that brought back memories from when I was 10 years old. Right. But that, that deal, I think really got me interested in narcotics. Okay. So as a railroad policeman, I had a buddy that uh, used to be a Virginia state trooper named Pete Ramey. Pete was a railroad cop. And when he was a trooper, he worked with the DEA task force out of Roanoke, Virginia. And he would tell me about his adventures and working undercover. And man, that just sounded so exciting to me. And, you know, plus I've been watching Miami Vice on TV. And of course, if it's on TV, we all know it's true, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, I applied for DEA. I finished my four-year degree. It took me a lot more than four years, but it's one of those deals where you're working nights and you're going to school in the daytime, right. uh, which, you know, Javier knows exactly what I'm talking about because he did the same thing. And, and so when I got hired by DEA after the Academy, I got assigned in Miami. Well, well the first I, 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 want, I want to stop you there because I want to get into that because um, okay. I got some, some interesting questions uh, regarding your first posting. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting how you took such initiative early on as a local, uh, a local cop. Uh, and, you know, I think you were 19 years old. You're already, you know, going uh, out of your way to run an undercover drug sting. <laughs> so clearly there was, you know, there was an ambition there. Um, Javier, what, so what led you to pursue uh, a role in law enforcement and eventually get you into the DEA? Yeah, basically, and I, and I grew up in South Texas, Hebronville, which is 5,000 population. People don't know where it is. It's about 50 miles out of Laredo. Laredo's on the border, Mexico mm. and the U.S. So I grew up in that area and uh, had an internship at Texas Department of Corrections at Ella's unit, which was housed the famous death row during that time. So uh, it was about three months working there. Then I got offered a job in Laredo at the sheriff's office. And uh, so I accepted that job and uh, I went to, you know, I, I was going to college during the day mm -hmm. and working. I, I picked the night shift and, you know, that was hard. And uh, at the sheriff's office, and I'm talking, I, I joined 1977. The money, as we all know, law enforcement wasn't it wasn't that good. I think I was making 10000 a year. So getting close to my degree, yeah, I was getting my degree and uh, the, the feds were hiring and it was DEA and I had to ask somebody who, what DEA was. I did not know what DEA was. So, and at the sheriff's office, you know, I, I hated the feds. <laughs> Some of the locals, you know what I'm talking about, right? You know, they're, they're 
you know, that bullshit attitude they'd come in with anyway. So uh, uh, I applied because DA was paying, I think it was seventeen or $18,000 a year. I was like, wow, that's, uh, you know, and I did not know what DA really, I, I knew federal marks, but what is that about? So I applied and got accepted. And my, my plan was only to come on for a couple of years. I wanted to go back to the sheriff's office. I was already a lieutenant at that time. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, I got to uh, my first job was in Austin, Texas, and uh, that uh, two years turned into 30 years. So basically when I came on, you know what, I didn't, I did not know what, what I was going to expect, but real quickly I learned, I said, wow, this is a great job. And uh, as I said, 30 years later, you know, I retired after uh, DEA. Okay, uh, so from from humble beginnings, this incredible career begins. Steve, uh, you know, I want to just kind of get into um, kind of psychologically early on. You know, as you mentioned, you did that uh, that drug bust, which was not really something you guys were were meant to be doing, but you you took it upon yourself to go do that. And then there was another incident when you were with the uh, the railroad. Uh, police, uh, where you had, I think, heard on the radio that there was an officer in a, uh, a gunfight. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think um, uh, the, 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 the officer had stumbled upon someone who had, uh, uh, a couple who had just, uh, the, the, the husband came home, found his wife, uh, uh, sleeping with another man. And so the, the husband shot the guy uh, and he was, he was on the ground. A police officer showed up, got into a shootout with this guy. You overheard it and you're a National Railroad Police. Um, nothing to do with that. You're like, no, 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 I'm jumping into this. I'm going, I'm going to find this guy and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help this police officer out. And you end up getting involved in that, in that gun battle. True. And, and, you know, so this is, I'm back in West Virginia now. Uh, and Bluefield is where I was a city police officer for six years. So I knew all the guys. There's only a 35 man department, so it wasn't very big. Uh-huh. And uh, actually heard the gunshots. I was, I was at the railroad building and about two blocks away is where the shooting was taking place. Well, I'm the only railroad police officer on duty for 26 counties in Virginia and West Virginia. Whenever I need help, who do I call? I call whatever police agency I'm, I'm in their jurisdiction, right? Mm-hmm. So the fact that, you know, these are my friends in Bluefield, and, and this is my former agency, uh, went up there, to, I was just being nosy to see what the gun shoot, you know, to see what the shooting was all about, and then saw the police officer hiding behind his car because the bad guy was on a third floor apartment, third floor apartment building shooting down. You know, so he had the high ground. He had command of the situation. Um, so I ran down there and I saw the, the wounded guy laying on the sidewalk and the guy on the third floor was trying to shoot down and, and kill the guy. So the, the police officer there was a rookie. He hadn't been out on the street by himself very long. And, and the first thing I said, you got back up on the way. He was so scared. He hadn't even called for help yet. Right. I mean, I, when I'm scared, I want help. That's the first thing I think. Of, right. So as he's calling for help, between shots, I ran over and grabbed the other guy and dragged him up into a recessed doorway so the guy couldn't shoot him, and then scooted back out to the police car. And it was it wasn't even a minute. Backup starting to arrive, and and uh, I'm actually laying under the police car, 
you know, on the ground where I could sight in on the guy when he would lean out in the wind and shoot at us cops. Mm-hmm. Well, we exchanged a lot of shots. You know, nobody got hit. We killed that building that night, but luckily no people were killed. Um, and, and so the next, you know, that was about 2, 33 o'clock in the morning when this happened. So I helped the police with um, taking statements and, you know, cordoning off this crime scene and all this stuff. Well, I got back in the office about 6.30 and I called my boss, my railroad boss, and he was just beside himself. He was so irate that I'd gotten involved in a shooting incident with the local police. Mm-hmm. And he showed up at the office and he's, he's just berating me. He's, he's calling me everything in the book. And he told me, he said, I'm going to get you fired over this. And I told him right then, I said, chief, if given the same situation, I wouldn't change anything I did. I would go help another police officer. Well, fortunately in the railroad police hierarchy, those guys had been former cops before they became railroad cops because our chief wasn't. Right. And they understood the situation. I got a commendation from the city I got letters of commendation from the railroad bosses, you know, for going to the aid of another police officer. But that taught me at that moment, and they didn't do anything to my chief. They just left him in position like nothing had ever happened. Well, that told me right then, I really don't want to work for a man like that if that's his attitude towards, you know, towards fellow law enforcement officers. So that's what gave me the motivation to continue uh, and complete my college degree and then move on to somewhere else. Okay. Yeah, because I'm, 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 you know, It's early days yet, but you're, you're, you know, again, you're, there's this drive that you have for, you know, adventure for kind of take, you know, taking things to the next level. Um, so, you know, it's, it obviously shows up again, again later. And I'm just wondering, where is that drive? Where's that ambition coming from? You know, um, and I've thought about this a lot because people have asked us that. I think my work ethic, and, and that's one thing about Javier and I both, and I, I think that's why we were successful with what went on down in Columbia is because we both have very strong work ethics. I mean, yeah. we're, we're uh, you know, we're retired police officers now, been retired for several years, and I think we're busier now than we, when we were agents with DEA. <laughs> We've got so much going on. But, um, I, you know, I, I hesitate here because – I don't want anything to sound like I'm trying to be a macho guy. I, mm-hmm. I know what I am. And Javier and I both agree this. What we are are small town country boys <laughs> that became professional law enforcement officers. that got the opportunity to work a really big drug case, a case of a lifetime that, you know what, probably every other agent in DEA would, would give their right arm to have an opportunity to work a case like that. Then as we moved on through our careers, you know, people told us you should write a book, you should do a movie. That's not why we did the case. We did the case because that's what we were assigned to do. And when that case was over, we simply moved on to the next case. Well, here towards the end of our careers is when Netflix came along, offered us an opportunity. Um, we honestly thought the whole narco series was going to be a flop. We didn't think anybody would want to hear the story that had been, you know, 20 years ago. Shows how much we know about Hollywood, right? (laughs) But that's the bottom line is we're just small town country boys that got to work a huge drug case. And then a TV show comes along and blows it out of proportion. And today we're sitting here talking to you, Lawrence. Amazing. Amazing. Um, Javier, um, upon graduating DEA training, you were assigned to Austin, Texas, and you hit the ground running. I'm going to quote you in the book. Mm -hmm volunteering for crazy jobs and taking a lot of chances. In many instances, I was reckless. Was that sense of abandoned couple with too much ambition that nearly cost me my job? It very nearly got me killed. Yet you were out there 
just running a thousand miles an hour looking to get yourself into the most dangerous scenarios uh, possible. Where did your drive and ambition uh, come from to do this? You know what? And yeah, it, when I got to Austin and, and uh, I, I was single, so, you know, I had a, I rented a little apartment. I didn't know Austin. Austin was a great place. And uh, I always remember it was, it was cheap. You know, I didn't have much money. It was right next. I didn't know that. There was a rated X theater. I think uh, the hookers would hang out there. After a while, they started calling me Mr. Policeman. You know, I, you know, they knew I was a cop somewhere. But anyway, when when I got to Austin, and and I'm Hispanic, you know, I grew up on the border, so I'm fluent in Spanish. So mm -hmm. I was getting to do a lot of undercover work, uh, and then I teamed up with a partner of mine who was Austin PD, Joe Regalado. So he was also single. So we were, and we like to bring Chase Whitman. You know, say happy day, I'm a guy. You know, I was married, mm -hmm. so the weekends and. Uh, and, you know, I mentioned the book that I was a little reckless. Uh, yes, I was, because I, I wasn't used to this type of work. And then all of a sudden, man, hey, this is great work. This is something uh, I think I can do for a living. And then you get into the job as far as, you know, and when you're first there, when you're first on the job, you're learning I was volunteering for every assignment because I wanted to learn the job. I was eager. Mm -hmm. uh, I was doing surveillances, working weekends. Then all of a sudden, there was a narcotic unit at APD, Austin Police, where they were also very, there was a guy, group of 10, so they were working weekends. So who would they call? They called me because I was single. I could go out at 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning. And we could travel because of my federal jurisdiction. It was a two-way street. So we were all over the place. And uh, you know what? I, I, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. And I mentioned, yeah, I, sh I think I should have been fired. But I had good bosses. And they knew that I was just trying to make, make a case. You know, I wasn't out there doing dope or, you know, anything dirty stuff, you know, there's, we have rules and I never broke, uh, you know, went over that line, but mm -hmm. I, I came close to it as far as doing everything against the book. You know, for example, I mentioned the book where, uh, one of the best cases turned out was me and Joe at a bar, <laughs> this guy next to us. And I just says, Hey man, you got any, any dope? So yeah, I do. He, 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 I bought a grab a Coke. I'll never forget. It was a hundred dollars. You know, my partner Joe was with me and uh, the guy said, yeah, shit, I can get kilos. And you know, uh, anyway, we never do that. That's that's movie stuff. That's TV stuff. That you know. So anyway, and on Monday I went in, told my boss I got a little chewy down. But you know, even my boss says, "Javier, man, you're 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 working. You're you're good, but just got to be you know under control. Then next time, you know, don't do that. You know." So anyway, we opened up a case. I said, "Hey, I lost a hundred bucks. Now, not to worry about it." My boss backed me up. But then, after a couple of months, this guy is calling me. I even gave my 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 home number, you know. So he was calling me. Says he had all sorts of dope coming in, and and that case led us. Long story short, we arrested an active Texas State parole officer who was moving the dope. Brought mm -hmm. it in from Houston. I mean, it turned out we arrested a whole bunch of people. The guy was still on the job, so that was a big uh, big arrest and. Uh, 
you know, the, the other case I mentioned, well, you know, like I said, when I almost got killed, going walking into a hotel room, uh, buying, buying heroin, you know, I mean, it was Friday afternoon, no precautions. So it was, uh, I took a lot of chances, but, you know, I was liking the job. I wanted to learn the job and I was doing surveillances undercover. I was the only guy who spoke Spanish. There's a lot of Mexican traffickers. East side of Austin back then was mm -hmm. all known for a lot of heroin trafficking. Now it's a beautiful area. You can't touch a house in that area right now. You know, but it's, uh, you know, I learned a lot and I did a lot and I just, I, I liked the job where I wanted to make cases, wanted to prove that I could do the job. And uh, it, it was, I think I was the highest case producer in the office at that time. Wow. I, I want to stick with that for a second because I'm going to quote you here from the book. You say that I worked my first narcotics job on the international border I had come to know so well as a cop, but entering the murky undercover world of drug traffickers and cooperating informants, it was hard to know just who were the bad guys and who was on your side. For instance, there was Guillermo Gonzalez Calderoni, the head of the Mexican Federal Judicial Police, probably the most powerful cop in Mexico, but Part of his success in capturing some of the biggest Mexican drug cartel members lay in his profound relationship with the bad guys. While he was going after some of the biggest dealers and working as an informant for the DEA, he was also protecting others going so far as to collect millions for setting up hits on rival drug lords. Javier, what kind of wake up call was this for you as to the reality of the drug war that you were entering uh, and how did you learn to navigate what you referred to in the book as a dark journey with no map to guide you and no way to tell just whose side anyone was on? You know, wow, wow, that's a, uh, glad you, you, you caught that. It, 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 it was, and it's something that, like I said, I had to learn on the job, I remember, remember, Commander Calderoli, and he was, wow, he was famous. He was well-known. We knew. Now, we could never prove it, but this is Mexico, and you knew he was working with other traffickers, taking out other traffickers. He was giving us information, and I always, I, I never trusted him, but you got the information. You have to work, right? You have to do uh, something. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, I mean, these guys would come in with Rolex watches, with all sorts of, they, you know, buying you all dinner, fancy dinners. But the information they were giving you was, you know, right on. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in Mexico, and, and like I said, at that time, we knew, I knew, but I could not prove it. But uh, it, it was a wake-up call for me in that... Mexico was very different at that time because of, like I said, all the, the violence that these guys were, uh, were utilizing. Uh, but it, it, it was a murky, murky uh, type of a world with, uh, with the Mexican traffickers. So you took whatever they gave you. And remember, they're in Mexico. And I was, you know, I started off in, in Laredo. My first undercover was in Nuevo Laredo. 
Uh, I wouldn't even in Austin yet. I was waiting to get transferred. I said, hey, Javier, you're the new guy. Let's go to Nuevo Laredo. <laughs> they just took me over. The, I met the informant, bought some heroin, uh, had, a, had a fried chicken place. The cops came in, the Mex vets swooped him up. And you know what? I felt sorry. He was an older gentleman. I'm sure he was just trying to make a living, you know, and I don't know whatever happened to him, but uh, uh, Calderoni, and, and I got to mention, I think I mentioned, well, he later on, I don't know if you know, but he got killed uh, in the United States. Uh, mm. A couple of guys, uh, he was go walking into his attorney's office, I think it was in Brownsville, Texas, the border, and they were waiting for him, so he was killed, and uh, yeah, you know, it's 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 a difficult world, Mexico. Later on, I've worked it, and let, let me just say, you know, it's it's not. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of cops that are on the take. You know, I mean, we all know it. It's, I mean, I'm not offending anyone, uh, but they're, uh, you know, they've been on the take for a long time. They, it's it's a. It's a system that has been generated and still going on. And uh, you just got to learn who to work with. I mean, you need that information, but you don't get in bed with them pretty much, you know. And if they're they're dirty, we're going to, you know, hey, if we get proof and we can prove in the United States, that's what it's all about. Then, you know, they will get indicted. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Steve. So now we can get into Miami because after you graduated uh, DEA training, you were assigned to Miami. That was your first post. And uh, in the book, you talk about imagining yourself becoming like Sonny Crockett and, you know, the Don Johnson character in Miami Vice. I'm going to quote you here, though. Um, You said, although I lacked a Ferrari, I was still living the dream of a narcotics agent at the epicenter of the cocaine wars. And I was proud to be attached to Group 10, one of the DEA's most elite squads. Can you tell us what was Miami like at that time in the 1980s? Uh, I think you got there in 1987. What what was it like there in the midst of, of, you know, the, 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 the flood of cocaine, the you know, the, the lifestyle, the crime, the action. What was this like, your first assignment? Well, uh, to say I was a fish out of water just really doesn't do it justice. <laughs> I mean, we went in, and my wife and I went into a whole new world. You know, she, like I said, I'm a small town country boy and, and she, she's a, a small town country girl from West Virginia. And uh, here we end up in Miami in the, in the 80s, and, you know, it was the Wild West down there. I mean, we knew from the media how dangerous it was down there. And, of course, when you're in the EEA Academy, they prepare you for things like that. But um, I, don't, I won't say that it, uh, I, it's not what I expected. It was what I expected, and that's why I wanted to go to Miami. You know, you wanted to go. That was the central point where, where the Medellin cartel cocaine was coming in from Colombia. This is when Pablo was in his heyday. You know, he was in, he was, this is a guy that uh, not only was the world's first narco terrorist, but he developed a business plan that made him responsible for as much as 80% of the cocaine market, first in the United States, but then in the whole world. I mean, think about it. Whatever your business is, wouldn't you like to have 80% of the market? I mean, Mm -hmm. holy cow, you would be in command. So, 
Um, now here's, here's a story that, that kind of puts it all in perspective. Okay. I get to Miami. I've been a cop for almost 12 years. The most powder cocaine I'd ever seen prior to DEA was two ounces in a baggie, which is about this much. The first case I got to work on undercover in DEA, we went to the Turks and Caicos Islands. So I got there in November of 87 and February of 88, we went to the Turks and Caicos Islands. I never even heard of the place. <laughs> I knew where the Bahamas were and, and that was about it. We took a, a 53 foot, I think it was, Hatter Sport Fisherman. I didn't know what that was. It's one of those fancy fishing boats that has the fishing chair in the, in the center in the back okay. that had, had been seized from a drug trafficker. And, and it was wired with hidden audio and hidden video inside. That's where we did a lot of undercover meetings. It took us five days to get to the Turks and Caicos Islands. I was sick for three of those five days. <laughs> I'm not a, you know, I'm a, I'm a land lover, I guess. Uh, but anyway, we get down there. When the deal finally goes, and it takes, you know, deals never go on time. It takes a while. Okay. Uh, when, when the bad guys finally flew in on the airplane, they dropped off 400 kilos of cocaine. So I went from two ounces to 880 pounds. Now talk about being addicted to cocaine. I was in a different sense. I was addicted to the law enforcement side of it because mm. I thought that was the most exciting thing I'd ever done in my life. I just couldn't wait for the next, you know, the next adventure is the way I, I uh, portray everything because life's an adventure. <laughs> And it was just a blast from that point on. We never looked back. Uh, spent, I spent 26 years with DEA, didn't want to retire, wasn't sure what I was going to do. And then Netflix came along. So it all kind of worked out. You know, I want, I want to ask you about that, uh, that particular incident you mentioned uh, where you uh, picked up the, uh, the, the 400 kilos in Turks and Caicos because the drugs uh, as you describe it in the book, were likely, most likely tied to Raul Castro, Fidel Castro's brother and the current president of Cuba. Uh, and as it was known amongst uh, the DEA at that time, apparently, uh, the Cuban authorities were allowing uh, the, the island to be used as a, as a Cuba, they were allowing Cuba to be used as a transshipment point for cocaine destined to the United States and an indictment was being prepared against Raul Castro until it was apparently squashed by President Ronald Reagan for reasons we can leave to the imagination. But at this point, I mean, I mean, you're talking about global forces operating right now at the highest levels of government, um, the most, you know, the most powerful cocaine dealer in the world. You're in the middle of the storm. Did you realize the enormity at that point? of the powers behind international cocaine distribution uh, or the power wielded across the globe by the Colombian cocaine cartels? Well, you know, you've read things. If you're, if you're going to be an agent, you need to really study up on it and know what you're talking about and know how things work. And, and so I was, I was aware of the politics. I had experienced small town politics where cases were dismissed because somebody was an influential member of the community. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you, you know, things like that stick with you. You always remember that. And when it came to indicting Raul, now I'm, I'm a rookie agent. I'm working for a senior agent named Gene Frankar, who is probably the smartest man I've ever met in my life. He's, he's unbelievable. And this was his case. So I was, other than doing that, I think they let me do the under, undercover because nobody else wanted to get on a boat for five days and go out in the ocean, you know. Okay. Um, and, and you do learn from your experiences. But uh, if this was all his case. I'm just there to support him however I can. 
I was a little surprised, you know, especially with Cuba being a communist country and, and you know, you go back to the, the 1960s missile, Russian missile crisis down there and all that. Mm -hmm. And and the way that the United States viewed Cuba as a communist country, I really thought that that was going to be a, a good thing that we had an open indictment on Raul Castro. Mm -hmm. But I, and I still don't to this day I don't know why the uh, the indictment was quashed. It was you know the call came from White House through the chain of command to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and and all I know is Gene called me and said, "Hey, f forget this. We're not indicting Raul because of Washington." I would really like to know what that was, but. Um, if you read through the history books, and I think it's even documented in our book, that because of the publicity from that case, Fidel and Raul identified some, some Cuban military yes. officials that became the sacrificial lambs. Because we, had, we tracked that twin-engine plane with the 400 kilos. The United States government tracked that plane coming out of Cuba. And when it, when it dropped the load to us, it went up, refueled, they tracked it back into Cuba. So there's no question in anybody's mind where it came from. Mm. That, that just like you said, Cuba was a major transshipment point for cocaine coming into South Florida. Yeah, I mean, there's been rumors for years, if you do your research, uh, that Raul Castro has been heavily involved in the drug trade, but that's for another conversation. Mm -hmm. um, I, I also, while we're on the subject of you, you know, kind of operating in Miami and kind of looking for that next adventure, um, you know, you say, if, if I was, um, I actually said, look, while in Miami, I had worked on cases that involved Pablo Escobar uh, and working in Colombia would finally be my opportunity to go after Escobar himself. If I was going to work as a DEA agent, and target traffickers, I wanted to go after the biggest fish I could. I was determined to get Pablo Escobar and months of research had convinced me that he was an evil monster. I knew I would have absolutely no problem putting a bullet in his head. <laughs> Where, you know, again, you know, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, your, your story play out with these different drivers and motivators looking for that next adventure. Um, but this starts sounding, you know, personal here. And I'm curious, wh again, where, where did the drive come from to take on the most dangerous criminal in the world, essentially? Um, I guess I'm, uh, um, and, I, and I hesitated on your question a while ago. I know you're asking the same question again, because I certainly don't want to sound like I'm pretending to be a tough guy. I'm not. I just thought it was, if you're going to take the time to do the job, yeah. Why not go as high as you can with it, you know? Okay. And the cases, okay. the cases that we were working in Miami, we knew, we being all the DEA agents there, knew that they were tied to the Medellin cartel and Pablo Escobar. Now, I certainly never had a case that got up that high. Okay. Uh, even when I started becoming the case agent myself, I never had a case that, that I could directly tie to Pablo Escobar himself. Okay. We could tie it to the Medellin cartel, but that's as far as I could get. Um, so then... Uh, you know, in 89, my partner got shot in a deal. And in the series Narcos, it shows that my partner's Kevin. And that was his real name. And they, they show that he's kind of an overweight, dumpy kind of guy. And he gets killed. The real Kevin was in much better shape than I was. He's a former Marine. Uh, and he did get killed. He did get shot. The informant got killed in the deal is what happened. Uh, so it's just a little variation of how Narcos portrays uh, some of the true facts. Mm -hmm. But all of that was, and if you've never been in a gun battle or, or, been in law enforcement or been in the military, you might think this sounds really stupid. 
and it probably is, but it was very exciting. I, I'm scared to death when I've been in a gunfight. I've been in quite a few. I'm always scared. But the good Lord gave me the ability to function with fear so that I could survive. And, I, and I, Javier has the exact, exact same ability. Um, so I'm very thankful that Kevin survived and wasn't injured any worse than what he was. Sorry that the informant was killed. But after it was all said and done and we calmed down, you just look back on the excitement of it that, that was associated with that and the adrenaline rush that you get from it. And um, so, you know, <laughs> my wife actually came up with the idea that uh, maybe we should move on from Miami to something more exciting. Well, good Lord, <laughs> my partner's been shot. You know, we're in the epicenter, like you said, of the, of the cocaine market. What could be more exciting? Well, you jump out of the frying pan into the fire and go to Columbia. And that's, that's how we ended up down there. It was kind of her idea to start with. Got you, got you. Thank you for that uh, uh, that elucidation. It, um, you know, there's there's obviously this fire uh, that bur you know, it's burning inside you, and you know I know you you talk about your wife also, you know, in, in the book a lot. Um, you guys make uh, make a great team, um, Javier. Um, you first uh, get assigned uh, to uh, Bogota, Colombia, in '88. That's when you get, so from Austin uh, and the stuff you're doing in Mexico, you, you eventually end up in Colombia. Uh, and it's 1988, uh, right after the country's attorney general, Carlos Moro Hoyos Jimenez, was kidnapped and killed by Pablo Escobar, uh, or his people, obviously not by Escobar himself. And, and you were sent there as part of a group of six new agents hired from all over the United States to infuse the Bogota office with, I'm quoting you, vigorous go-getter talent. Can you describe what it was like in Colombia at this time? Because to quote you, you said, it was, it's hard to convey how eerie it was to arrive in a city at war. Yes. Yeah, I get there, and you're right, in 1988, and it was a new group of guys that were trying, the office had, you know, had sort of slagged down uh, the productivity offices, so they were changing bosses, they were bringing in new guys, and the, the boss who got selected was my boss in Texas, Joe Toff, who was a very tough boss. Anyway, so I get there, Toff assigns me the, 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 the Pablo Escobar case, and it was, I had never seen, you know, what the, the violence, that's why, you know, I'm from Austin, Texas, surveillance is undercover. But when, when I got to Bogota, it, it was, and, and Pablo Escobar, and I did not know who Pablo Escobar was. I had to learn and I dug into it. And wow, after a while, it was like, wow, this guy is out of control. And the thing that I told people that we weren't used to was the terrorism, the, the violence, the, like you said, you know, the killing of an attorney general. He killed also one of our uh, colonels, uh, Colonel Franklin Quintero. And then all of a sudden, we, you know, the, the sicarios, you know, the assassins, it was, what, what are the sicarios? What are they doing there? Like I said, their lives are dedicated to Pablo Escobar where they do not care if they die. So they were killing people. Uh, like I said, in my, my vivid memory of, of Pablo Escobar was the placing of his car bombs. And the car bombs, you know, when 
we used to see about 10 a day. I mean, this guy, wow. it was, uh, yeah, it, it was something that, uh, what's a car bomb? Who puts a car bomb? Pablo Escobar. And it was being placed in Bogota, Medellin. It was so bad. And the first time I was there, we had an informal task force where I would go for two, three days at a time. And they would not let me stay there. It, it, it was that bad. And I told the story. When I would drive with the cops, they, the first time, they said, oh, yeah, you got a gun? I said, yeah, pull it out. In other words, we had to drive with our guns by our chest because of the Sicarios. And their favorite way of killing people was two guys on a motorcycle. We saw the Blanco of Miami. She initiated this and caught on in Medellin. And it was just, you see two guys, you better run. Uh, so, you know, and then he was placing car bombs right outside our base. When we would leave, uh, a lot of our guys got killed because of the infamous uh, placing of the car bombs and bounties, you know, bounties on police officers. He wanted as many police officers killed as he could, and he was paying $100 a hit. Can you imagine $100 for a human life? And I caught that firsthand information and again you know we broke rules policies we never broke the law yeah the foreman only trusted me so it was on a saturday night and the cops just said here you got to come with us so uh, i located the informant at a dance hall and i was the one who actually arrested the informant he started fighting me uh trying to go for his gun luckily the cops came in we subdued him but anyway that guy Later on, when we uh, debriefed him, uh, he says, yeah, I'll talk to y'all. You know, I'll never, he was 15 years old. And he said that he had already killed 10 police officers. And one of the things I'll never forget, he says, I love Pablo Escobar. I will die and I will kill for Pablo Escobar. He gave me money. I took my family, my mom. He said, my mom has a house. She's got food. She said, we were the poorest. We didn't have any of that. And, uh, you know, lived in the comunas of Medellin, like the, the ghettos of Medellin. Mm -hmm. So my allegiance, I will die and I will kill for Pablo Escobar. And he said, and all of the Sicarios have that same attitude. So how do you deal with a young thug and that's all they are, thugs who don't care about killing. They don't care, you know, who's, they don't know who DEA is. They don't know the ramifications of killing a agent. They'll just kill whoever uh, the boss wants them to kill. So it was an eye opening for me in that we never saw that. And then, like I said, he was just out of control. Then he put a bomb on a commercial airline. He killed the, then he, the next guy running for president who we really liked, Luis Carlos Galan, because Galan was going to bring back extradition. And also, I don't know if you know that, but Pablo Escobar's fight was because of extradition. Pablo did not want to get extradited to the United States, and that's why he created that, that war campaign, not to uh, be extradited. So Luis Carlos Galan running for president was going to win. And his mm -hmm. model was, if I'm elected, I am bringing back extradition. Escobar hated him. Pablo has him killed. The next president of Colombia campaigning on a stage in 1989. That was the straw that broke the, the camel's back. There was a lot of other straws, but that one really stuck out. But, you know, the then the commercial airline, the Avianca, 100 and I think it was 103 people were killed. Uh, the DOS building bombing. I mean, I can go on and on oh about the, the atrocities, the violence, 
and that was the awakening that we had in that we had never gone up against a trafficker of this magnitude in the violence, you know, in the terrorism that Pablo Escobar created. Uh, I mean, it's the, the carnage and the, uh, uh, the out of control, pell-mell uh, violence uh, destruction that, that was taking place uh, was, uh, I think, for the first time, or, or maybe not for the first time, but the, uh, you know, the, the absolute devastation was referred to as narco-terrorism. Mm -hmm. uh, Steve, I'd like your view on, uh, on this. You know, the whole concept of narco-terrorism uh, that Pablo Escobar uh, had brought to Colombia. The, I mean, the, the, the killing of a presidential candidate, Galan, um, the attorney general, the, you know, the, uh, you know, there were, there were, uh, uh, what was it at the, I forgot what it was where the, the scene where the tanks are coming in to, is it the justice department or the court where they're uh, blowing up, uh, uh, where they end up setting fire to all the files, all of Escobar's files. It was, it was like a war. It was, it was a war. Um, and what I'm, what I'm wondering is, you know, this concept of narco terrorism, right? Well, what was the, um, you know, what was the goal here? What was the, you know, why, you know, because you're talking about car bombings. Uh, I mean, what he was doing, and, you know, a lot of people romanticize Pablo Escobar. But, mm -hmm. but on the other hand, we look at terrorists around the world and we send in the Navy SEALs. We send in Delta Force, right? I mean, but he was romanticized, but he's setting, there's car bombs going off, killing innocent women and children police officers, um, what was the goal of this, this new concept of narco-terrorism and has it been used since? Well, uh, Pablo, so keep in mind, whatever Pablo does is for him. You know, this guy is an egomaniac in every sense of the word. He's let the, the power and the greed overcome his psyche. So it's, if he's doing it, it's in response for him. If other people benefit from it, well, that's okay too. But yeah. it's all about Pablo Escobar. So he's in control and he's going to stay in control. Now, because he's fighting extradition, I mean, he tried different things. Like he ran for political office down there and actually got elected as a, as a uh, I believe he called it a suplante. Is that what you call it, Javier? Which was he, was, he was elected as an alternate member of the House of Representatives is what we call it here in the United States, part of Congress. Mm. And the primary, when, when, when uh, Pablo was elected as the alternate, the primary resigned, which bumped him up to the primary role. So now you got Pablo Escobar in, in the Colombian Congress. Now, he wow. wanted to be in there for a couple reasons, but you know, one of the perks of that is if you're a member, active member of Congress, you can't be Congress, you can't be arrested down there. So, you know, he thought he had a free pass. He had his get out of jail card, for, you know, get out of jail free card with him. Um, but then, you know, Rodrigo Larabonilla, the, the uh, justice minister of Colombia, came forward and, and unveiled the truth about Pablo Escobar in open Congress in front of Escobar. So he was forced to leave Congress. He had to give up his position. Of course, it cost Larabonilla his life. 
two guys on a motorcycle came up and killed him as he's, he's in traffic in Bogota one day. Yeah. So, you know, there's another hero in Colombia. Um, but so, so Pablo wanted to get the attention of the government. He wanted to put so much pressure on them that they would be forced to deal with him to do away with extradition. So how do you do that? How do you bring pressure on? Well, indiscriminate violence carries a lot of weight in any country, right? So now you've got, just, just imagine, and we call this the deal of a lifetime that Pablo is allowed to surrender to this custom-built prison because the plea bargain was just unheard of. It's never been done anywhere in the world that we're aware of. But put yourself in the shoes of the president of Colombia. Mm-hmm. You've run on a ticket of pro-extradition that you're going to fight the narcos, you're going to fight the terrorists, and you're going to stop the indiscriminate killing. It's not happening. Pablo's still setting off his bo- car bombs. He doesn't care if you're a police officer or if you're a, a baby. He will kill you. He wants to put that pressure on the government. He doesn't care if you're a member of the press, if you're a member of Congress. He doesn't care who you are. So he's kidnapping people to try to raise funds, but also send a message. Very influential people in Colombia. Now, you're the president of Colombia. You've run on this platform. How do you stop the violence? You know, because things have been tried and nothing has worked in the past. So they came up with this idea to allow him to self-surrender. And the truth is, when Pablo surrendered in June 1991, the bombing stopped. That's the absolute truth. For that one year that he was in prison, even though it was a country club, not a real prison, Mm -hmm. the bombings did stop. The killings didn't stop, but the bombings, the terroristic activities did stop. Okay, so so it worked uh, for a while. has, you know, obviously, you know, Pablo Escobar took his criminal activities to pioneering new heights of, uh, of carnage uh, and uh, evil, as you call it. Has, has narco-terrorism been used as a method uh, by the cartels or in any other country uh, since? Absolutely. Absolutely. Look at Mexico today. That place is wide open. You've got, I don't even know what you call people that come in with a bag of severed heads and throw, roll those out on a dance floor in a nightclub. I mean, that is just beyond sick in my mind. Who hangs bodies off a bridge? Who dismembers people's arms and legs and heads and then puts it on display for everybody to see? The carnage in uh, in Mexico is, in my opinion, is every bit as bad as it was in Colombia. Uh, it's just out of control. Now, you know, that's a whole different topic, talking to comparing Mexico to Colombia. Mm-hmm. But we want to give credit to Colombia because Colombia was dedicated to putting a stop to that. I'm not so sure that's the, the case in Mexico today. Okay. Um, Javier, um, I want to I want to ask you about um, you mentioned Joe Toft, your your boss, who was your boss in uh, back in Texas, right? Um, uh, under under the direction of uh, Joe Toft in Colombia, um, who who actually arrived in, at the same time you did. Um, right. You and your partner, Gary Sheridan, spent a lot of time building relationships with and creating networks among the Colombian National Police at Joe's, at, at Joe Toft's direction, right? 
And also, he wanted you guys to build your own networks in Colombia with military operatives who were at the front line uh, of the battle against Escobar. That's, that's a quote from you. Um, while he was creating his own networks with the highest levels of law enforcement uh, and the military in Colombia. How did that concept, um, how was that different from the way the DEA had operated previously in Colombia? Okay, that's a great uh, <clears throat> question, great concept. It was different in that we didn't really have those relationships. When we got there, yeah, and Joe, I mean, you know, he was a great boss. He was a tough boss. He did not remove a lot of people. He sent a lot of people packing, you know, get out, you know, go home. So he made us, and I, you know, I, I always remember, he says, if there's a drug bus at two in the morning, I want your contacts to call you at home to tell you about it. And if you can, go over and, and see it. So it was a different mentality. So we started, yeah, Gary Sheridan was my first partner. We started going now personally to go see the cops that wasn't being done. And all of a sudden, you know what, in Colombia, it's like any, if you show that you care, and it, it's a two-way street. Before it was like, you know, DA, the Columbus would complain, we give DA all this information, we don't know, we don't get anything back. <laughs> and it was just simple type of law enforcement. They give us information, all of a sudden, hey, here's an attaboy letter, your information led to the seizure in Miami. And all of a sudden, Miami, wow, we got this great telephone numbers, you can get up in, in Bogota and Medellin. Uh, they, you know, all of a sudden it started working. It started that relationship. Hey guys, we got this great operation coming over. We go over every day to to get their intelligence. But it, and then all of a sudden we started working joint cases, joint cases, and that we were at arrest in Colombia, and we would arrest in Miami. It was beautiful. We would set up joint operations. I mean, it was a great concept. So I admire Joe for making us to do that. Then all of a sudden, the guys we were working with in Bogota, we had a special elite guys or from the DIN unit, D-I-J-I-N, which mm -hmm. is like the undercover unit, the intel unit. All of a sudden, those guys were now in charge of the Pablo Escobar search in Medellin, which was great for us because they knew us, we knew them, we trusted each other. At the beginning, we had some corruption. Uh, but it was it was really our fault in that we were placing Medellin guys in top leadership positions at the search block. Pablo got to their families and said, you know, you know, one of their families, hey, if you don't uh, tell your son, don't tell me you're coming after me where, you know, you're going to get killed. So uh, all of a sudden we had a couple of our guys arrested. We took them out and we only brought in guys from Bogota that were not from Medellin. But because of Joe Totten, we admire him, but building those relationships, as, as you all know, it's not our country. We're there to help them out. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, that, that information started flowing. And, uh, you know, Gary and I were the first ones to send, I mentioned the book, Captain Pedro Rojas, may he rest in peace. We sent him on a TDY mission, uh, you know, one of Escobar's properties, what happened? The cartel find out he's there and there's only two guys. So they killed them, they dismembered them. And that's what really brought on that, guys, we can't let this happen. So it was like a full frontal, basically a, a attack on, on Pablo Escobar, which, you know, 
you know, later on led to his demise. But, uh, but the relationship, uh, it, it was just outstanding. But you had to, like I said, it's not a one-way street. It's you help them out, they help you out. And once they understood, you were there with them. And, you know, I also, another thing that they always credited us, they would tell me and Steve, guys, y'all are the only gringos you know, that help us, that are rotten operations are, you know, coming out. And uh, like what about all the other guys that are, you know, stationed, they, they don't, you know, anyway. So that was another respect that we had for them that we're out there with them putting our lives on the line. So that, you know, that helped well, with the credibility. Excellent. Um, Steve, now you arrive in Bogota a few years after Javier, uh, I think in 1991. Um, so you were looking for the next adventure, like you said, hopping out of the, the frying pan into the fire. So what was your impression, uh, of going from fighting drug trafficking in Miami, uh, which, you know, fair enough, it was the, the cocaine capital of America to fighting on the front lines, uh, of the war against drugs in Colombia, where, where it really wasn't all out war. You know, we got Javier's impression. What was, you get there, what's your impression? Well, it's kind of funny that the way things worked out uh, because I got there on a Monday, reported to the embassy. Three days later, Pablo Escobar surrendered to his prison. Right. Now, now going, in, going into Columbia, I didn't know I was going to be working on the Escobar case. You don't know until you get there. And then okay. they, give you, they give you an opportunity to get to know the other agents and, and see where you, you just kind of click in with people. Um, but I like to joke around that, you know, Pablo heard Murphy was in country. He might as well just give it up. So God. we all know it's not true, <laughs> but, but, so, but here was my first impression that week. So I find out, you know, Pablo surrenders and, you know, and Javier and Gary were kind of like legends in the office, you know, they were the top tier guys, you know, and, and we're newbies in the office. And, and uh, I thought, well, this is fantastic. Pablo Escobar is now in prison. But I look around the office and Javier and Gary, they're disappointed. They're, they're really dejected. And so is Mr. Toft and, mm -hmm. and the people that have been there for a while, even other members of the embassy and other departments were all really disappointed. I thought, what the heck is wrong with this picture? You know, but then you get to know these guys and you see, and you hear about what they've been through and everybody felt like they had lost because everybody wanted to bring Pablo Escobar to justice, real justice, whether that's a bullet in the head or going to a real prison. But then, you know, we, I mean, we didn't know about the prison. We didn't have confirmation about the prison until we actually went in there a year later after he escaped. Mm. But we suspected, you know, it's probably not a real jail cell. And, and occasionally you get informant information. You never know if it's correct or not. But what it did for me is, is that first year, and I hit it off uh, with, with Javier and Gary. We just, Gary and I actually had some, uh, mutual acquaintances in the United States. So we kind of got to be friends through that. And, uh, and so these guys kind of invited me into the little click there to start doing some stuff against the Medellin cartel. And, and so that first year gave me an opportunity to really learn what had been going on, learn about the organizational structure, who the connections were, find out about how Javier and Gary had built this phenomenal relationship with the Columbia national police. Uh, it was fantastic. That's that relationship that, that Javier initially established three years before I ever got there is what led to the successful conclusion of the death of Pablo Escobar and the dismantlement of the Medellin cartel. Any, you know, regardless of what anybody says, there's other agencies that like to take credit for stuff. Um, 
that man right there on the screen deserves all the credit because he went in there and did what had to be done. I came into a great situation. You know, I go in and meet the police and because I'm Javier's partner, I'm accepted. Now I've, I've still got to earn their respect. I mean, you can see me on screen here. I'm about as white as you get. I come from an English Irish background. I don't blend into a Hispanic country, right. but I still had to earn the respect of the Columbia national police. But initially I'm accepted simply because I'm Javier partner, uh, Javier Pena's partner. So it was a great situation to step into. On top of that, what Javier will never tell you is we're, well, he'll tell you this part. We're pretty much opposite of each other. Um, I'm, I'm very organized. You know, I've been married my whole life pretty much. Uh, he's a little bit disorganized. He's married now, but he wasn't back then. But what he won't tell you is he's got a brain like an encyclopedia. I mean, and you know, I'm not blowing smoke because this, this guy's been my partner since 1991. I've never met, well, my first partner, Gene Frankar, was on that same level where they remember things. Their minds are really like encyclopedias. They can remember relationships. Uh, they can remember who's in charge of what, who has responsibilities for what, what's the familial relationship between this person and that person, can remember dates, seizures, locations. I, I always have to go look things like that up. Or if you got a partner like Javier, I can turn around in our office and say, hey, when did this happen? And he's he's got like instant recall. So the other agents in the office, they used to even comment to us about about how different we were from each other but how we had the best relationship, the best partnership they'd ever seen in law enforcement. And, you know, if you watch the show Narcos, it shows Javier and I, we get in an argument, we're shoving each other up against the hallway. We've never even had a disagreement. (laughs) That's all Hollywood. Yeah, but uh, Javier, obviously they took some license there, but Javier, you mentioned that initially you were skeptical of uh, of Steve and, uh, you know, it, it kind of took you a while uh, to, to say, wait a second, this, this guy is, uh, you know, he, he, he bleeds just like I do. Um, what what kind of led to you uh, warming up to Steve and, and uh, you, and obviously you've become best friends and partners. Um, but, uh, you know, what was it about Steve that eventually you said, wait a second, this, this, this is the right guy? Yeah, no, because, and you know what, when we, we lived together, in Medellin, and I knew of Steve, but it, it's when you go to Medellin, the search block, things are a little different. It's uh, it's not like your normal law enforcement operation, right? So yeah. it's, it's a military type base, police base, and uh, they're doing a lot of things that are like, uh, you know, the operations, there's no op plan involved, there's no rate plan, it's just hey guys we're gonna go hit this and let's go and then uh so i didn't know how steve would react but after a while it, you know it's like nah, we're, hey we're in it together he's he's got my back i have this we trusted each other and that's what you need uh in any operation type you need that that trust and and he mentioned it, and i tell it too i'm i i I'm the worst writer in the world. I hate paperwork. Uh, my desk was, uh, my buddy used to call it internal combustion inside paperwork. <laughs> uh, Steve's wife used to organize my desk anyway, but I always had a notepad with me and I would write everything on a notepad. You know, I, I think I looked at my, I, my Colombian times, I got like 250 notepads worth of notes. They're still somewhere in my, you know, in a box. 
but so we hit it off. We trusted each other. We were doing a lot of things that were unorthodox, meeting in four months for the first time. Only Steve and I used to go meet them. <laughs> you know, I was afraid it was a setup. You know, Steve, you know, so the, the cops had to go in before to uh, protect us. Uh, the operations, there was no op plan, you know, we'd ride up, on, you know, go up on a, on a Huey. They, you know, we'd go down, uh, you know, sometimes we'd jump off the Huey, hit a place. Uh, there'd be, you know, shots would be fired. You know, if, you know, right now, if a shot is fired at DEA, man, the paperwork is like five days. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? Where the paperwork, there is no, there is no stinking paperwork. It's just, hey, you go on to the next, uh, to the next raid and you forget about it. So that's what I'm trying to say that it was unorthodox. But uh, once, like I said, he got there, once we lived together, it, it was different. We, we trusted each other and we needed each other to basically to survive. So, um, Escobar turns himself in uh, and he makes a deal to, as Steve mentioned, uh, go into a, a prison that he had built himself, uh, which was a palace. Uh, I think you guys called it the La Catedral or something like this. That is correct, the cathedral. Okay. And um, so he has his own... He, he has everything in there, right? Uh, master bedroom, bat, you know, uh, beautiful bathroom, uh, access to uh, firearms training for his people. He's got his Sicarios in there. I mean, it's an incredible sweetheart deal. He doesn't lose any of his assets. None of his assets are, so he's still got his billions. Um, and he's, he's essentially uh, allowed to run his cartel just from behind, so he from behind the uh, the walls of this um, this gilded cage. Why the hell does he escape? Why does he? Leave? I mean, you couldn't have had a more perfect setup. What the hell happened? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll just real quick. Uh, greed. That's all it was. His 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 greed. And it was over a bag of money that had deteriorated. The money was, it, you know, the weather conditions. And he was, he got so upset that he actually killed, he himself killed one of his guys, one of his longtime childhood friends, one of the, his main partners who was doing all the distribution. The Sicarius killed the other guy. And that's what did it in for Pablo Escobar, that greed of killing his two best friends, his two main lieutenants over money that he thought these lieutenants were hiding that money from him, which was not true. Just plain old greed. He's got four years to go. He's going to have the assets of the world. No one's going to be chasing him. Um, so, so, so he kills uh, two of his biggest um, uh, dealers, friends, right. um, over nothing because of greed. Uh, but so why does he have to get, why does he have to escape from the prison? Well, um, there might've been some, we had an informant that filled us in on what happened. Javier had an informant. And we went through the channels at the embassy to, you know, we were talking to the Columbia National Police 
we all agreed it was a joke. The, the deal that was reached to allow Escobar to surrender, the circumstances surrounding it, the, the prison itself, him paying his own bodyguards, him hand selecting his fellow prisoners, uh, you know, good guys, Columbia National Police and gringos not allowed within two miles of the perimeter of this prison. He's allowed to, uh, he's only got served five years and he gets to keep all his assets. So we all knew this was a joke and it was an embarrassment for the Columbia National Police. But us talking to Mr. Toft and, and going to the ambassador, there was pressure put on the government of Columbia by the United States that he really needed to be moved to a real prison, not the country club he was in. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know that this was specifically mentioned uh, by the ambassador, but you know, I'm pretty sure the implication was there that if nothing happened, then you know, the press would be brought in and the circumstances would be made known publicly. So that, that you yeah, know, with sure. a politician, you know how they are. <laughs> that gets their attention. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So, okay. So during, so the manhunt gets started up again. And um, you guys are uh, working side by side with the Columbia National Police and the elite uh, uh, DIJIN unit, right? The Directorate of, of Justice and Intelligence, I think. Um, but Javier, it was, it was actually against U.S. policy for the DEA to accompany Colombian law enforcement on these missions, yeah. right? On the raids, on the hunt for Escobar. But you and Steve, you defied those rules. Uh, you went out on the raids anyway. Um, did you guys ever get in trouble for this? And also, how were you expected to take down Escobar if you couldn't physically engage in the hunt for him? That's a great question. And I'll, uh, we weren't supposed to, but it was expected, <laughs> basically, from the op our office in Colombia wanted to know everything that was going on. Uh, the rules of engagement, and it's like anywhere in any country, it's their country, you're there to assist with intelligence. Uh, but, you know, Steve and I, I mean, the cops would say, hey, we're going to go out, please come with us. What do you do? No, we can't go. What, what do you mean you can't go come with us? So we were going out, and there were some other people there that were snitches, snitching us off to the embassy ambassador. Mm -hmm. We got warned a couple of times, you know, from the state department people but the dea people wanted us to go out there they they expected us to be out there and i, I and i know later on in talking to joe Toft, he, his biggest fear and joe told us was man that one of us would get hurt that was the phone call that he was always trying to avoid state department the rules you can't go out we were warned but uh you know what we we had to we did it, and by doing it, that showed our credibility uh, to our to the counterpart, to the cops. Who's like, man, y'all are with us on operations. We were not on a lot of operations, you know. Uh, luckily, we never got hurt. Uh, but by being there with them, it it was it was you know that 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 intelligence, you know, basically. We'd arrest someone, he'd have a phone book worth of phone numbers going back to Miami, we'd copy them, send them back whenever we would raid a place. The, the, the Colombians would give us like two days 
because it was against the, the rule, the, the law, I think, in Colombia. They said, all right, two days, that's all you have. Here's all the paperwork. We'd have Xerox parties. Have you heard of a Xerox party? You I've know, heard about uh, it in the book. Yeah, that, that agency that starts with a C and ends with an A, they fly in Xerox machines and this big airplanes. We'd rent uh, warehouses and uh, everybody at the embassy would come out and work. All right, here, Xerox, everything, send it back to headquarters. And all of a sudden, in headquarters, there's a special unit. Then they started blocking accounts, seizing accounts, you know, that were Escobar-owned because of all that. So, yeah, rules were, were broken. Laws were never broken. But you had to do it, and they were expecting it. You know, but, you know, the State Department people were always, you know, warning us. But, you know, the, the DA leadership, uh, I'm going to say it, they wanted us uh, to be out there uh, with them. I mean, it, it worked. And, and at the same time, like you said, the cops were always like, wow, hey, these two guys are risking their lives uh, mm. by being with us and nobody else is doing it. So it created that extra credibility for us. Mm. Well, um, yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? Um, you got to play at the bureaucratic level, the politics, but on the ground, you know, you, you have to deal with the realities. Um, right. Steve, um, so it... It's hard enough uh, trying to uh, stop this uh, this war, this narco terrorist war, to uh, to to catch uh, Pablo Escobar. It's hard enough, uh, but on top of that, you also had to deal with um, interagency uh, tensions. So during the second manhunt, there seemed to be a lot of tension between the DEA and the CIA. Uh, and as I understand it, a fair bit had to do with the crossover between drugs and FARC, uh, F-A-R-C. First of all, what was FARC and why was this an issue? Well, a little bit of history about Colombia. As beautiful as the place is and as much as we love that country and the people there, the honest people in Colombia, the truth is it's extremely violent. They have, their history is a very violent history. Um, mm -hmm. Right now, they have the dubious distinction of having the longest-running civil war in the history of the entire world. It's over 50 years. I think it's coming close to 60 years now that this civil war has been going on. So the, the FARC, the Forces Armada Revolucionariado de Colombia or something, something like that, it's just another ins communist insurgent group that wants control of the country. Mm -hmm. So... You look at law enforcement, our job is to make prosecutable cases, cases that we can collect evidence and prosecute in the United States. And that's, our, that's what our mission is down there. Mm -hmm. The CIA, their mission is to uh, battle the insurgent groups, especially communist groups, that might have a negative imp impact on the United States, right? So it's two completely separate missions. And so when we say we didn't get along with the CIA, it's true, that's absolutely true, but we don't want the world to think, and we, we explain this in front of our audiences when we speak to groups. What we're, saying, what we're getting ready to say about the CIA is not an indictment of the entire organization. Mm -hmm. It was this particular chief of station who was in charge in Bogota at that time. He didn't like DEA, he didn't like Javier, he didn't like me, he actually threatened to charge Javier with treason at one point. Did not, did not want to share information, and his position was, you know, we're trying to say, look, there, we're, we're looking at the FARC or the, or the insurgent groups because of the crossover with the drug traffickers. He said there is no crossover. Well, when you've got FARC guerrillas providing security on Pablo Escobar cocaine labs out in the jungle, 
In law enforcement, we call that a clue. They yeah. were clueless. They were clueless. They refused to acknowledge that crossover. So we were giving them access to every every report, every teletype we wrote, they had access to. Mm -hmm. They gave us access to nothing. It took the ambassador eventually stepping in and forcing them to give us an additional security clearance so that we could read reports and see photographs and things like that. But you know what? Every report I read from them was the report I had written the day before because they were <laughs> just taking our information and plagiarizing it and sending it to Langley like they had gone out and done something. Wow. The only the only positive thing was they referred to us as, as uh, credible sources of information. They didn't call us liars, but it was, it was horrible. The, now the, the guys in the field that we dealt with from the agency were not like that. You know, there was one guy in particular, we didn't trust him. Um, um, but you know, we, we, we didn't associate with him. He was in the field with us. But everybody else from the CIA, for the most part, we got along with, except that one guy and the chief of station. I mean, it was just, it was ridiculous. And the sad part of this is, you know who benefited from that? The narcotics traffickers and the insurgent groups. Mm -hmm. Certainly not the innocent people of Colombia or the citizens of the United States. Yeah. Um, you know, again, the, uh, the politics of it all. Um, you know, that was certainly an issue that led to 9-11, the stovepiping of information the lack of interagency cooperation. So this is a, this is a problem that goes way back. Um, so uh, it turns out uh, Escobar was hiding in plain sight all along. You guys um, were hunting him, the second manhunt after he escaped, I think it was like a year and a half. He's out there on the loose, um, you know, again, back to the old, uh, you know, narco-terrorism, car bombings, police getting killed, this kind of thing. Um, but all that time, he's there in his hometown of Medellin, where he's still a bit of a folk hero to many of the locals. Uh, and, I, you know, he gets, tr he gets tracked down finally. Um, how, how did he end up meeting his demise? Um, can you, Steve, can you describe those final hours? Sure. The, um, <clears throat> and this is where we, we want the world to know who the true heroes are because there's a lot of people who want to take credit for it. And there's a lot of people that want to give Javier not credit for it, but here's the true story. So we've got Colonel Hugo Martinez is our boss at the search block in Medellin. He's, he's Columbia national police officer that's in charge of the 600 man, uh, de Busqueda, the search block. And our sole mission, we're members of the search block. Our sole mission is to find and take down Pablo Escobar. No other responsibilities. Now, his son, Lieutenant Hugo Martinez, same name, um, had, was a very intelligent young man, had trained himself on how to use radio directional finding equipment because the telephone systems back during this time was not 4G, 5G like we have today. Mm -hmm. It was basically radio. They operate off of radio frequencies. So... Uh, now, the government of France had donated several vans to the government of Colombia that contained this radio directional finding equipment. Uh, and the principle that they used was triangulation. So you would have three vans parked around the city. If you knew the frequency and the frequency is active, they could shoot a line out. And where those three lines came together, that's where the signal was emanating from. That's where Pablo was using the phone. Mm -hmm. The problem was there was a very large margin of error back during this time. And you're talking about Medellin, that's two to two and a half million people, condensed population. 
So your margin of error could be several city blocks large. To refine that margin of error, you send troops in, you send an individual in is what you do, holding a handheld antenna and a monitor. And he has to ride down the street in his car holding that antenna out the window. <laughs> There's nothing obvious about that, is it? That's something you see every day? <laughs> Not. So that's what Lieutenant Martinez did. He's driving down the street holding that antenna out as he's going down the street. Now, his first, his first hit was erroneous because and he eventually figured out that there was a body of water close by and water will affect the way a, a sound wave travels. Okay. So they, they hit a warehouse that was empty. Well, you can imagine the, the ribbing he took from the other police officers. Uh, oh, you sent us to an empty warehouse. You don't know. You don't have a clue what you're doing. And I'm sure it was a lot more than that. But he figured out where the mistake was, recalibrated his equipment to, to uh, atone for that, that uh, anomaly there. And so he's driving down the street and his, his meter's telling him, look left. And he says he looks up and there's Pablo Escobar standing in the window of a, a three-story row house talking on the telephone. Oh my God. Well, so he says, Lieutenant Martinez says that Pablo looked at him. Now, so we went back during the tapes because you know Pablo was being recorded during this conversation. Okay. And, and we went back and listened to the tapes to see, well, Pablo's talking to his son Juan Pablo and it's like, hey, you know, this is what we're going, whoa, what is that? There's somebody riding down the street holding an antenna out the window. There was nothing like that. There was no break in his conversation at all as if Pablo didn't realize what he was looking at. The only explanation we've ever been able to come up with is that, and it's just like I'm talking to you right now. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at you on the screen, but in my mind, I'm going through my conversation, what I'm going to say to you. And I'm, I'm seeing you, but I'm not really acknowledging what I'm seeing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that's the only explanation we've ever been up, uh, able to come up with as to why Pablo didn't realize what he was looking at, because that could have been the clue that would have saved his life that day. But it didn't. Now, the Dehean guys are out there in the neighborhood. So Lieutenant Martinez calls them, and he also calls his father, Ugo, his Colonel Martinez, back to the base. If you watch the show Narcos, it shows that I was on the roof when they launched this raid against Pablo and when he was killed. That's not true. I was back at the base. That's a Hollywood addition to the show to create more drama and conflict. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I'm back in the base. Now, I'm with the Delta operators and, the, and SEAL Team 6 operators from the United States military. Mm -hmm. And I'm standing in the doorway and we've gotten to be friends after 18 months, you know, we're, we're just kind of shooting the breeze. And I see the executive staff for Colonel Martinez, Martinez rushing over to his office. Javier and I had such a good working relationship with the Colonel that we could walk over to his office and when, and that's what I did. Now, when I got to the doorway, he motioned for me, come on in because he's on the radio coordinating what's getting ready to happen. Um, the, some of the, the Lieutenant Colonels and majors whispered to me what was happening that they'd located Pablo Escobar and, so now we're trying to summon the 600 man search block force to go out there and back these guys up. Well, you don't, you don't get 1600 people. I mean, 600 people on trucks issued with weapons and assignments and roll call and everything in just a minute or two. It takes several minutes for this to happen. Hmm. So Colonel Martinez tells his son, he said, listen, we're mounting everybody up. We're on the way, but contain the scene. Do not let him escape. Well, the guy had always gotten away. And let me tell you, the Dahin guys, they weren't going to let that happen again. So they went ahead and initiated a raid. They blew open the front door. Now, this is a three-story row house. Right. On the first floor where you go in, and this sounds really strange. We're not used to seeing things like this in the United States. It was a combination kitchen, garage, and a bathroom and storage rooms on that first floor. Okay. So like 
when I went in the house, there's the kitchen, but there's a taxi cab parked right in front of the kitchen counter. So that's, that's a little bit strange. You don't see that here in the U.S. Um, they searched that floor. They make way to the second floor, and that's where Pablo had been on the phone. Now, Pablo knows something's going on. He heard the explosion. So he makes his way, and this was surprising to everybody. He makes his way to the third floor with one bodyguard. This is a guy who used to have as many as 500 bodyguards protecting him. We were all shocked to learn he only had one bodyguard that day. They make it up to the third floor. The cops get to the second floor. You know, they're yelling police. Pablo starts shooting at him from the third floor. One of the police officers was actually getting ready to advance up the steps, and he tripped on the step and fell down, which saved his life because Pablo shot at him. The bullet went over his head. Wow. Um, the Sicario gets to that third floor window. He jumps out onto the roof of the house behind their three-story house because behind him was a two-story floor uh, row house. So he jumps down that one story onto the roof. He's trying to make his escape. Well, the cops had sent a couple guys around the backside. They order him to drop his weapon. He starts shooting at them. They kill him. He falls off the rooftop. Pablo's in that third floor window. He, he's ready to jump down. And so here's the roof, but the building next to it was another three-story row house. So there was a wall here. Mm -hmm. He's trying to make his way across that wall. He knows the cops are going to be in the third floor window where they're going to have an unobstructed view of him on this rooftop just any second. He knows there's cops on the ground. He tries to make a dash across the roof. The cops get to the window. They order him to drop his weapons. He turns around and starts shooting at them. They fire down. The cops on the street fire up. They catch him in a crossfire. Pablo Escobar met his end that day. Man, I tell you what, um, just a uh, an intense and sudden end uh, to all the all the carnage and devastation that he brought on that country. Uh, and you know, I guess uh, he goes out with a whimper, not with a bang, um, uh, as he should have. And uh, Javier. Want to get your your thoughts? Um, in the end, what was it that toppled Escobar? Because, as you said, Steve, he's he's there with one Sicario, mm -hmm. right? He's he's making mistakes left and right. Um, he's talking with his son on these phones way longer than he should have been. Um, Javier. What was it that, that brought him down? Um, because he'd survived and escaped, you say in the book, 15,000 raids. Right, right. He, he ran a billion-dollar empire. Uh, I mean, this is a guy who waged a, a, a war. One man waged a war against a country. Right. What, what in the end, what was it that brought him down? You know what, in the end, Pablo Escobar was taken down because of Colonel Martinez, General Octavio Vargas Silva, the concept of the search block that was to go after Escobar and all of his members. That second search, we started arresting, killing, and when I say killing, this guy would come up with guns, but all of his organization, we attacked everybody from the cell heads in Miami to the lab operators to the sicarios at the end it was slowly we it was dwindling down 
where like Steve said, had one, one Sicario left. Before that, he had 500. His organization towards the end was pretty much being taken down a piece at a time where Escobar towards the end was running and we missed him many times. You know, we'd go in on raids with helicopters, he would run, people were protecting him, but towards the end, uh, it was just that, that tenacity of the search blocking do not giving up. We wanted to give up many times, but then you would see your friends, your police officers get killed. So it, it was, we never gave up. It was that tenacity of going after everybody that was involved in Pablo Escobar's organization. So that to me, my mind is just that, uh, you know, the search block, Colombian National Police wanted to take their country back and they took it back from Pablo Escobar. Powerful. Um, let, guys, um, I want to get into, um, so I've got two more, big, uh, two more big questions for you. One around mindset and another around what you guys are up to next. Um, so the, 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 first, the first one is mindset. Um, I, I really want to understand, I want our audience to get a sense of, because now, now they're seeing who the real guys are. Um, and you know, we can draw inferences from your character and the way you speak, uh, and your authenticity about your motivators, your, what drives you and this kind of thing. But what does it take? What is the mindset? Uh, Steve, we'll start with you and then we'll, I'll ask you as well, Javier, but what is the mindset of a successful DEA agent? I mean, let's look at the frame from, let's look at the frame of mind necessary to operate in an environment where you're going after a cartel. And now everyone knows if you're getting into the DA, it's not like back then the, the public didn't know what a cartel was. They didn't know the ruthlessness of it, of the operation. They didn't understand narco-terrorism, none of this. Now everyone knows. Um, so what is the, the mindset have to be of a DEA agent uh, who knows that there are no bounds. Um, there's a price on your head. If you're a DA agent, it really doesn't matter. You guys had a $300,000 bounty on your heads. Um, and these guys command billions and billions of, they command the budgets of a small country. Mm -hmm. So what kind of mindset do you need in order to succeed at that level? Well, we like to joke around that they didn't send us down there because we were real smart. <laughs> but um what the first thing is to be a DE agent you know and, and we get a lot of messages uh and personal messages as well as text and emails and whatever the messaging is on social media of people that say that they're inspired by our story to become a DE agent mm -hmm. and they want to know what it's like and we try we do try to answer people when we can uh first thing i tell them is if you're looking at a nine to five, 40 hour a week job, this ain't a job for you. It's not a job. It's a lifestyle. It consumes you. If you're doing your job the right way, if you're dedicated to your mission, it's a lifestyle. Who suffers? You're going to suffer. You're going to suffer sacrifices because you're going to sacrifice your family. They come second. Is that right? Absolutely not. It's not right. Your, your religion is going to sacrifice some because you're whatever your religious convictions are, 
because you're going to see things and you're going to be required to do things that, that you ask for forgiveness of later. Um, you have to have the ability to stay focused on what your mission is and not get distracted. You know, later in my life is Javier and I, we made it to the highest ranks of DEA and we've run, you know, offices with hundreds of peoples and, and multi-million dollar budgets and all that kind of stuff. And it became a joke at my retirement party that uh, if you've seen the commercial where uh, a dog is doing something and all of a sudden the squirrel comes along and he goes squirrel and his attention is diverted over there. Yeah. Well, later in life, I got like that, but you can't be diverted by the squirrels that pop up when you're chasing, you know, the world's first narco terrorist. You just have to have a total commitment to the mission. You've got to maintain that focus. Um, you're going to encounter things and see things that most other people in the world will never see in their lives. And these aren't good things. These are horrific sights. These are things that will never leave you. Um, you know, my partner was shot in 1989 in Miami. Um, he's alive. He's doing well. He came back to DEA. He's fully retired now and he's, he loves playing golf and we stay in touch. But occasionally, you know, all these years later, I'll still have a little dream uh, that wakes you up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night because that was my partner that had been shot, you know, and the informant was killed. Mm. So um, you've got to understand up here that you're going to be able to handle things like that. If you can't handle that, that doesn't make you less of a man. You know, I, I believe the good, good Lord gives us all certain abilities. And, and for Javier and I, it was just the ability to be able to function under high stress at that time. Um, stay focused. Can I do the same thing now? Probably not. I'd probably be too scared to get involved in some of the stuff we got involved with down there. And, and here's an example. Just think about this. If you get in a, in a, somebody shooting at you, what's your first reaction? Human reaction is to go find safety, isn't it? which means run. Yeah. It's either fight or flight. Well, if they've got the drop on you and you run, you're probably going to get shot. So are you scared? Absolutely. You're scared. Somebody's trying to kill you, but because of this, uh, whatever ability we had to process the circumstances at that time and not run, that's what I've, you know, that I think kept us alive. Javier's got a, a situation in which, I think some CIA guys wanted to run when, when they were, when they were getting shot at and Javier grabbed them and stopped them, which is what saved their lives. Jesus. So, um, you know, I mean, I just, I feel like I'm bragging on us and I don't mean to, that's, uh, it's like I say, I don't know that I have this ability to do any of that. Now I might go cower up in the corner over here and whimper like a baby. Mm. But at that time that's, and I give, you know, some people uh, kind of cringe when they say this, but I'm a Christian and I give the credit to God for giving me the ability to do that at that time. And did we think we'd be doing this in retirement? It's the last thing we thought we'd ever be doing. So right. that's what I attribute it to. Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, Javier, your thoughts. What, what is necessary psychologically? What kind of state of mind do you have to be functioning at if you're going to go to war with the cartels, be a DEA agent, go undercover and risk your life, what kind of mindset do you have to, to have in order to be successful at that kind of job? You know what? Your mindset has to be that dedication, that tenacity and not giving up. Like we've mentioned, there are many times we want to give up, but we, we never did. But it's that, that, that mindset is you're helping to get rid of a world-type problem, 
Pablo Escobar. And you're always thinking, how many people did this guy massacre? Did this guy kill? We, we, we claim 10 to 15,000 people. One of his cardinals claims it's closer to 50,000 people. So it, it was that mindset was you, 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 you cannot give up. We're the good guys. We're out there helping the Colombian National Police. And if something's going to happen to us, hopefully, thank God, like Steve said, it, it never did. Uh, we, came, we came close a couple of times. But you, you just you have to go and dedicate your, uh, and because of our ethics, because of our training, uh, and uh, like Steve said, it's, a, it's, it's not an eight to five job. I spent a couple of Christmases, spent a couple of New Year's with the cops living at the base in, in, in Medellin, away from everybody. So it's just that your mindset is you need to go at it 100%. There you cannot just go in halfway, well, let's say, it's a weekend. I'm going home. Uh, you, you can't do that. You just got to, you know, traffickers operate Saturday and Sundays. They operate at three in the morning and you got to be out there uh, with them. If you don't have that tenacity, then you're not you're not going to do a good job uh, there. Makes sense. Makes sense. Excellent. Uh, excellent advice. Um, so, guys. Now you're living a, a life uh, that you never thought you'd be living. You, you guys are uh, doing documentaries. You're out on tour. You're writing books. Um, ever since the, the publication of your book, Manhunters, uh, the, and the explosion in popularity of the Netflix series, Narcos, uh, Steve and Javier, you guys have, have been on tour, playing to packed venues, presenting the real story behind the takedown of uh, Pablo Escobar uh, and the Medellin cartel. Uh, and you're, you're kind of getting into some new investigations, as I understand it. Um, you're certainly not resting on your laurels. Um, I understand you're both involved in the uh, investigation of a cold case involving the first hijacking of a commercial airliner and an ancient organized criminal enterprise that may have helped start World War II in the Pacific. Man, you guys go from like big case to, you know, big case. What's this, what's this all about, guys? Well, in, in 19, we call it the Lost Clipper. Okay. So in, in 1938, a Pan Am seaplane, Pan Am Airways was establishing an air route from San Francisco over to Guam and over in that area. Um, they used seaplanes and these were four engine seaplanes they called them clippers and this this particular one was called the hawaiian clipper okay. it was traveling and and because of the limitations of fuel and the, and the aircraft not being able to fly very far without refueling they would have to island hop so very expensive so the hawaiian clipper left san francisco en route to uh, china actually to hong kong and uh it disappeared in 1938 over in the South Pacific, there were 15 Americans on board. So we're working with a, a group that haven't been investigating this for quite some time. Uh, the, the leader is a guy named Guy Nofsinger, a former Naval Intelligence officer. Uh, he learned about this when he was going through command staff college and, and this was his thesis about the Hawaiian Clipper. And so he's been working on this thing for over 20 years. Well, he brought Javier and I on as the chief investigators. Mm -hmm. These are our theories as of today. We believe that the Japanese military, the two Japanese spies, 
hid on the, on the Hawaiian Clipper at one of the jaunts where it stopped for fuel and they would spend the night. Mm -hmm. That once the plane was up in the air and reached the point of no return during this particular leg of the flight, the two spies came out with handguns, skyjacked the Hawaiian Clipper and forced it to land in Micronesia. We believe that the 15 Americans were taken off that plane onto the island of Tonawas, which is an occupied island with no electricity or running water. It's part of the area called Chuk, which is, if you've ever heard of Truck Lagoon, uh, Truck Lagoon was Admiral uh, Yamamoto's, that was their Pearl Harbor. He was the admiral in charge of the, of the Japanese uh, fleet back then at that yes. time. Yes. So we believe that they took the 15 Americans and, and murdered them on that island and buried them there. Why did they want that plane? Well, there's a couple theories. One is the engines on that plane was the newest, latest and greatest aircraft engine technology in the world. So we believe that the Japanese took the Hawaiian Clipper, flew it to Japan, reverse engineered those engines, and the engines that they produced were the engines on the Zero fighters that invaded Hawaii and you know the kamikaze pilots would fly and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. We also believe that, well, we know that one of the people on that plane was a Chinese, uh, a man of Chinese descent who owned three restaurants in Newark, New Jersey. We believe he was carrying $3 million in gold bearer notes. We believe, now his story was that uh, he was gonna give those, that money to Chiang Kai-shek because the Chinese and the Japanese were at war at that time. Right. $3 million would buy you 50 American fi uh, fighter planes and a year's worth of maintenance. What we believe is that $3 million was been, going to be given to the Japanese as ransom for Amelia Earhart, who disappeared in 1937 in the South Pacific. So if we can prove any of this, <laughs> and, wow. and we have a lot of circumstantial evidence, we don't have any direct evidence or physical evidence yet. Mm -hmm. If we can prove this, we will prove the first hijacking, skyjacking in the history of the world was the, was the Hawaiian Clipper. If we can prove this, the first act of war against the United States by the Japanese will not be Pearl Harbor, it will be the skyjacking of the Hawaiian Clipper for military reasons. If we can prove all this, we may finally bring a definitive end to what really happened to Amelia Earhart. And on top of that, we may bring closure to the 15 families of the Americans who were murdered over there. So uh, we, I went Talk over on a trip stakes. with them. Pardon? Talk about high stakes. Oh, it is. It is. And it's, you know, and it's again, like I said earlier, life's an adventure. It's just, an, you know, it's another adventure, but it's, but it's got, the results could be uh, very beneficial to some fam American families. You know, are we doing it to change the history books of the United States? Not really, but if it does, it does. The truth is the truth, right? So I went over to uh, Chuk with them a couple of years ago. We did a two week, uh, we, we took ground penetrating radar. We tried to find the bodies we didn't have any luck, so we're now planning our next trip over there, which is we're going to take cadaver dogs with us and see if we can find the bodies this time. Well, i uh, tell you what, you guys certainly lead uh, a fascinating uh, life. Uh, so uh, looking forward to your next work. Uh, Javier, you guys have any, any new books planned? You guys, are you guys uh, going to be going out on tour again once the social distancing ends? Well, we, we had some tours, obviously. Uh, we had some plans, but because of the pandemic, those mm -hmm. got postponed. So we're, we're hopefully 
once this is over, we get back to our speaking uh, tours. And our speaking tours, as Steve has mentioned, where we go all over the world and we tell the real story of Pablo Escobar. Basically, the rise and fall. We have original photos, original videos, so we take the audiences of that that uh, barbaric empire that Pablo Escobar had and uh, said we take questions and answers and we talk about that and uh, you know so hopefully our, our presentations will start back once uh, this uh, pandemic is over. I hope so I mean you guys have an incredible story um, and uh, you are uh, both uh, very compelling in uh, your presentation and in uh, the way you document, again, what it is you, you accomplished and you continue to do because, and I think you even refer to it in the book, uh, although you didn't say it on this podcast, one of the reasons why you both were so successful uh, is because, and the reason that the CNP were successful, it's for all of you guys uh, that, that took down Escobar is because it was it became personal for you. Uh, it was vengeance. It was it was something that you were doing uh, for the government. You were doing it for the you know out of uh, a need for revenge for the the people that had been killed and who suffered uh, under Escobar's reign. So that, correct. Um, yeah. that personal vengeance, that revenge, was what made it all all work because of all the friends that were killed by Pablo Escobar and the innocent people, yes. Guys, it's, ex it's exciting stuff. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, scary stuff. It's, it's, it's violent, uh, but it's, it's real life. And uh, thank God uh, that there are people out there like the two of you. Thank you so much for your service, Javier and Steve. Uh, and for our audience who want to learn more, uh, about the both of you and your exploits, uh, where can they find you? The easiest way is, uh, you know, first of all, thank you for having us on the show, Lawrence. It's been a, it's been a privilege to talk to you and, and you have brought up things that we've done a lot of podcasts and interviews. You're brought up a lot of things that nobody's ever asked us before. So we appreciate that the opportunity to, to expound a little bit more on what we normally talk about. But uh, to find out more about us, it's easiest to, just to go to www.deanarcos.com. So that's D-E-A-N-A-R-C-O-S.com. That's our website. Uh, it's everything on there from a calendar that'll tell you when and where we'll be in the world, which is kind of empty right now, <laughs> but it was, we're hoping it'll change. Um, you can find pictures, fan pictures are on there. There's a lot of video links. Um, we offer our book for sale on there. Uh, which, and that quite honestly, our website is the only place you can get an autograph and personalized copy of our book. Um, and we offered it a discount because, you know, times are hard for everybody right now. Um, that's, that's the best. We're on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Vimeo, and YouTube. And three or four years ago, I couldn't tell you what any of those are. <laughs> but we're, all, we're on all those under DEA Narcos. Okay. Uh, Hey, follow us, like us, whatever it is you're supposed to do on there. You know, uh, we like to post a lot of personal things on there. I, I did a little thing for a while about Murph and Molly. Molly's my dog. And, uh, you know, we're just trying to have some fun in life here in retirement age. It's, it's a busy life, but no complaints whatsoever. 
That's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, guys, for coming on the show. Um, again, uh, it's, uh, it's an honor to have you both here. Thank you so much for your service and everything that you've done. Uh, and uh, I implore anyone uh, to buy your book, to get Manhunters, to read it. It is absolutely uh, a powerful telling uh, of the real story behind the takedown of uh, Pablo Escobar. Uh, guys, uh, continued success. Okay. Thank you, and to you too, Lawrence. Thank you very much. We appreciate Thank it, Lawrence. Very, Take care, great, guys. Great interview. Thank you. Thank you.